So thank you everybody. Um, particular thanks to um, SRHE for um, hosting this event and also to the network conveners for inviting me um, to speak this afternoon. In fact, I feel a bit like a fraud stood here at the moment because as um, Anya and Richard were, were speaking, I was sat there making notes thinking, ah oh, crikey, there's one, one fewer point I can make. <laughs> right, that one's gone, that one's gone. So actually, David just said to me, feel free to use the full half hour. I think I need about 10 minutes because <laughs> everything's been said. But um, no, I'll, I'll try and make sure that this lasts, uh, that this lasts half an hour. Um, the title for my um, presentation this afternoon is around engagement, encounter and disruption, the humanities in professional learning in the university. And I suppose the um, distinctive um, approach that I want to take this afternoon is to start with this idea of engagement, student engagement in higher education, and use that as my starting point for thinking about humanities in professional learning. Um, and what I'm hoping to do is to try and disrupt a little bit that notion of engagement and to kind of offer an alternative idea or an alternative space for how we might um, you know, think about something else in engagement, something around encounter uh, and disruption using the, using the humanities. So that's, that's how I'm going to um, take it uh, this afternoon. If I can get the slides to move on. Shall I use this? Right. <laughs> Nothing's happening. Any ideas? Yeah. <coughs> Good moment to finish your lunch here. There we are. So it's. Perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Technical brilliance there. So the way I want to kind of approach this is, first of all, talk a little bit around how this discourse of engagement has really arisen and become almost rhizomatic in the university, um, and to talk about how it's particularly come into professional learning and teacher education uh, as a particular um, site that I'm thinking of there. And then I want to kind of move away in a different direction and look at the etymology of engagement and how that leads us to ideas of something a little bit different to encounter. So I'm looking at the relationship between those two concepts before then finishing um, with a move towards literature. So hence, um, you'll have probably heard some of this um, in Anya's paper. Move to how we might think about the place of literature um, in professional education, teacher education, and also film. And I want to um, show you some stills um, from a film called Imagine. I don't know, has anybody seen the film? Brilliant, if you haven't seen it, excellent. So I want to show you some stills from the film and then play you a little clip. And with that, I want to perhaps share some reflections on how I've used this film in initial teacher education. So that's really the structure of what, um, what I want to do um, this afternoon. So let me start then by, I suppose, just trying to trace where, where engagement has come from in universities. And I think it's really clear that um, universities at the moment, the contemporary university is under huge pressure. 
perhaps it's always been like this. And I'm not saying there was some golden age when universities weren't under pressure, perhaps different kinds of pressure. But I think it's very clear that um, in the contemporary university, there's loads going on. And we talked about it in our small groups. We've kind of referred to um, it today in the papers that we've had from, from Anya and Richard. So we only just have to think about some of the things that are going on. That you know, The global crisis around <coughs> recruitment. Recruitment's a massive um, issue for universities at the moment because, of course, that's where the money comes from. So not only have we got issues around recruitment, then we've got issues around retention as well. You know, unless we retain those students once they come into the university, we've got problems around, around funding and uh, measures in external league tables. And of course, league tables are another one of those big issues, aren't they? You know, there's league tables for almost everything. Um, I, I've just moved to a new job, and uh, my old university came top in um, one ranking. And of course, this was absolutely... Um, you know, this was plastered over every communication that the university had. And it was the fact that the university had, all of its vehicles were um, ecological and sustainable. They were all green. Actually, the university only had one. It was a converted milk float for taking the rubbish. Anyway, so the university came top of one league table. So, anyway, those of you who know which university I came from can have a good giggle at that. So, yeah, um, so it's all about visibility and, and positioning and all those kind of things with which we're fami very familiar. I don't have to rehearse those, those arguments here with you. But I think there's one, um, one issue that perhaps even, amongst, even above all of those that I've just referred to is so, becoming so dominant um, in contemporary higher education, and that's the issue of engagement, student engagement. I don't know if it's the same way you are, but certainly in the universities which I've got experience of working in, engagement is massive. And um, it was interesting starting a new job just two or three weeks ago and being shown around various departments and um, being introduced to the student engagement team, not just an individual, but a team of staff who have responsibility for student engagement. And then actually being shown the student engagement officers where students can go and be engaged. <laughs> and uh, I was also told about the student engagement risk register, where you know, students at risk of disengagement could be put on this register and then things would happen to them to make sure they re-engaged. Now, I, you know, I'm not joking here. These are real things that are happening. I'm sure you've got similar things happening in, in your universities um, too. So, but what is it? What is this thing called engagement? This is something that I've been thinking about and, and writing about for, for several months now. And I think it's clear that there's a fairly common understanding of engagement. It's about students doing things, turning up to, to lectures and seminars, and if there are non-compulsory tutorials, they, you know, they're making appointments to, to attend those as well. Um, they're making sure that they're doing... Um, things on the virtual learning environment, whatever that looks like. They're contributing to discussion boards, doing the reading, posting on message boards. But it's more than that as well. I think it's about students engaging with the wider life of the university, being part of societies and groups, and even sitting on university committees as the student representatives, um, and sitting on validation panels and, and the like. But I think across all of those different understandings of, of, of engagement, 
there's an idea that it's about some kind of performance. It's about a doing certain things. And of course, we can clearly see, I think, why this has become so important. Because if students are engaged, they're much more likely to be retained at the university, hence assuring the university's income streams. And of course, if students aren't engaged, it's about accountability, accountability for academic staff. If students aren't engaged, what's wrong with your teaching? What's wrong with that module or that course that means that your students aren't engaging? So there's two big kind of related discourses in a tri triangular relationship here. There's engagement, but there's also retention and accountability. But the very idea of disengagement, I think, is seen as, as pathologised conduct. And I know I've been to an event last year, and last year or earlier this year, earlier this year, I think, and spoke about what I call the educational value of disengagement. I, I won't go into, go into that here. But disengagement is seen very much as pathologised conduct. We don't want disengagement. And, and universities are having kind of re-engagement strategies that I've talked about um, to try and avoid this thing. But I think Ross Ferguson, back in 2013, a, a little bit old now, but I think it, it says perfectly what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. The act of withdrawal is conceptualised antithetically. That is, it signifies an absence of engagement. Disengagement is thereby conceptualised as a fundamentally negative process. It is, by implication, a failure to act, an absence of exercise of will, or at extremes, a default condition of passivity or indolence in which personal responsibility is abrogated. So that's the kind of context um, that I, I, I just wanted to set uh, for what I wanted to, to say. And I think that while it's true that we recognise this in relation to undergraduate students, perhaps postgraduate students less, I, I, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear what you think. But certainly I think what's relatively new to me is that this requirement for engagement is increasingly seen in programmes of professional learning and particularly in teacher education. That's the context in, in, which I've, in which I've worked. And I think lots of the things that I've just talked about in terms of, um, in terms of undergraduate engagement are the same for um, engagement in um, professional learning. So I just want to show you some examples I've read various bits of literature which use the language of engagement and just doing a word search is really interesting, particularly in government documents um, where this idea of engagement and, and um, student-teachers engagement in professional learning is coming from. So um, there was, uh, back in 2007 there was a consultation on um, qualified teacher status, the government consultation and the response, and in that document there is repeated reference made to trainee teachers and newly qualified teachers use of an engagement with research evidence. It's not use or knowledge of, it's engagement with research evidence. And I think that language is significant. And in the same document it talks about um, student teachers, newly qualified teachers maintaining engagement with teaching. Of course, this is all about retention, just like I was talking about in relation to the undergraduates. Retaining undergraduates 
but also retaining professionals um, in teaching. And Elton Charlecroft um, and a group of others talked uh, last year about um, the government requiring teachers to engage with fundamental British values. And again, I think that, um, that language is significant. Uh, Torrance and Ford uh, highlighted the government's requirement that teachers engage with the professional standards. Not just that they meet them, but that they engage with them. And I'm interested in what's the difference. Do you meet standards or do you engage with them? I'm not really quite sure what that means. But I think, again, the language is, is interesting. And then back in 2016, uh, again, another government document, I forget the title of it now, but um, talked about engagement with continuing professional development. Again, not just enough for teachers to, um, to qualify, but they must continually develop themselves professionally. And I'm really interested that the word that keeps coming up is engagement. And I want to suggest that it, it's for the, exactly the same reasons as we talk about and are concerned about undergraduate engagement. It's about retention, but here retention of teachers in the profession. But it's also about accountability. If teachers aren't doing these things, they themselves become accountable um, to head teachers, to governing bodies, um, to, the, to the profession. So why do I think this is so much of a problem, this language of engagement, this culture of engagement? In one sense, there's nothing at all wrong with it. I think, you know, if we think about engagement as, as a willing, uh, full commitment to um, doing certain things, then that's admirable. It's admirable that um, undergraduate students and postgraduate students want to engage with their learning, be fully committed to it and, and to their subject and their discipline, and that teachers are, are, are fully um, engaged in, in their profession. But I think to talk of engagement solely in those terms as a kind of performance, a kind of ritualisation of certain things, doesn't get to the heart of what I think it really means to be engaged. And to think of engagement as only as performance, I think strips out the possibility of education from those programmes in the contemporary university. So that's the, that's the first claim that I really want to make, that engagement, I think, is at risk of stripping what is educational out of higher education. So in, in trying to counter some of this, um, I found it often really helpful to turn to etymology. And I've become quite taken by sometimes um, looking at how the etymology of words can help us to think differently. And I, I've done it with um, concepts like student satisfaction, and I've, I've written and researched about that. And, and the etymology has been hugely helpful in, in thinking about the concept. So I wanted to do the, the same here as well. Uh, so if I turn to the etymology of engagement, probably some of the... Can you see that from the back? I'm sorry, it's a little pale. I'll read it out. Let me see. I think we see the obvious things here. As soon as we talk about engagements, yes, there's this idea dating back to the 1620s about formal promise. And then we've got the idea of the engagement ring that comes after the formal promise uh, from 1863. That I expected to see. What I didn't expect to see when I looked at this is this little bit here. 
Engagement, the noun meaning a battle or fight between armies or fleets. Dating from the 1660s. And that to me was quite interesting and kind of unexpected connotations of that word engagement when we think about it um, in the contemporary university. So if we think of engagement then in terms of an encounter with the enemy, that I think is, is really interesting because it brings to mind ideas of um, encountering otherness, encountering alternity, oh, sorry, alterity, which I think perhaps might help us to think differently about what engagement means and what engagement means in, in professional um, learning. So let's then take just that um, idea of the battlefield. I just want to read a little bit um, from a longer paper um, that, I've, that I've got here. So to engage on the battlefield, to encounter the enemy, is arguably one of the most visceral and disturbing of human experiences, fueled by, amongst other things, a fear and the instinct to survive. While few of us thankfully have to undergo such experiences, part of our everyday experience of being human can also be thought of in terms of engagement through encounter, and I've hyphenated that as a phrase, engagement through encounter. We come face to face with what is unfamiliar to us, and we are forced to respond. And that response might be through acceptance of what's going on, might be through rejection, or even indifference. And I just reminded um, this morning when um, David's question in response to my question about, well, well actually, you know, when teachers, um, you know, teachers might want to actually turn away from things. I sorry, David, I can't remember exactly what you said this morning, but you were talking about... Yeah, so, I mean, I, mean, I, I had that in my own experience, of a, of a, of yeah. a, of a, right at the end of the course, actually, of a, of a, of a student who said, well, I don't. I don't want this. Yeah. You know, and, there was a, and it was yeah. a challenge to everyone around yeah. here. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah. So there's a challenge to respond that comes from that confrontation, that encounter with otherness. And it might be one of a number of, of different responses, and all those are fine, but there is the, the demand to, to response there. And um, Anya this morning referred to the philosopher Stanley Cavell, and we both use um, Stanley Cavell's um, work to, to help our thinking. So again, I want to turn to um, Cavell at this point too, because... Cavell writes about this, this, um, this respond to, to encounter, um, and he talks about that response in terms of our consent or dissent in criteria, a requirement to say how the world is for us, and if we accept how, the, how people are saying the world is, or if we uh, reject that, or if indeed we're indifferent to it. The criteria of which Cavell writes are there in relation to all our human practices, they're inextricably part of the fabric of our everyday experiences. But for Cavell, criteria are especially important in our language, in the way in which we encounter or engage with language and so in the words that we use. When we ask about the specific circumstances in which we would say a particular thing, we're talking, Cavell says, about criteria. And he says this in his seminal work, The Claim of Reason. 
He says the philosophical appeal to what we say and the search for our criteria on the basis of which we say what we say are our claims to community. It's about whether we choose to stand with our community, whether we consent in criteria, or whether we dissent in criteria. So Cavell, it's for what we consent to, is about our indication of our membership in a polis. It's about what we say. And Cavell finds this same concern with language in the works of the American essayist and philosopher Henry David Thoreau, and his work um, often is a reading of, of Thoreau's earlier work. And in his celebrated uh, work, Walden, Thoreau considers how we inherit language that has been passed down to us. This is language that's familiar to us, which we learn from infancy. And such famili familiarity Thoreau describes of in terms of a mother-tongue relationship. But sometimes, he says, we are thrown back onto our most familiar of words to have to consider them again. It's in these encounters, we use that word deliberately, in these encounters, we find that a familiar word might take on a new meaning in a different context, or that our most familiar of words will simply not work for us. I'm sure we've been in those situations where we're struggling for a word and we just can't find the right one. Or that a word that we think we've used before and should work just doesn't work in a particular context. And for Thoreau, he calls these um, a father-tongue relationship. Now, there's nothing authoritarian here. He's not saying that the father-tongue is better than the mother-tongue. Oh, there's nothing developmental about it that we acquire the mother-tongue and then we acquire the father-tongue later. It's just that the father-tongue, in the way he explains it, is about a sense of um, strangeness and loss in relation to the language um, that we have. And to experience words is to undergo this kind of father-tongue relationship, to encounter them. For Cavell is a very unsettling experience. It's to be put in that position of strangeness. I'm sorry. Right, so we put in that position uh, of strangeness to have to take on the responsibility for deciding what particular words mean in any given context. And Cavell, in his reading of Thoreau's Walden, writes evocatively of this kind of encounter with language. And he uses language which, to me, kind of reminds me of that kind of battlefield scenario. I mean, the language is very powerful. And this is what he says, when we encounter that kind of language which stops us in our tracks, we kind of have to decide how it is for us, what it means for us. And Cavell talks of this experience like this. Perhaps it will happen by a line of words so matured and experienced that you will see the sun glimmer on both its surfaces as if it were a scimitar, a sword, and feel its sweet edge dividing you through the heart. Now that's powerful stuff. I think it talks about what's at stake uh, when we um, encounter language in this way. So, if we agree with Cavell then, um, and Thoreau, that language can be a site of encounter that Cavell says is, um, is, is, is educational for us, it's part of what he calls our uncommon schooling, then I think this opens up the possibilities 
for literature and poetry and drama and the like in education in the same way that Anya was talking about this morning. And so I want to now just move to reflecting on the way that um, I've used a particular work of fiction in my own teaching and in teacher education. I want to turn to um, this work. Anybody familiar with this? John William Stoner. Yeah, a number of you have, have read it. Um, so if you don't know the story, it's about um, a young man, Stoner, who um, lives on a very poor farm with his family, and the farm is not really doing very well. They can hardly make ends meet. And the family decide to send their son Stoner, Stoner sorry, to university in the hope that if he studies soil chemistry and agriculture, he can come back to the farm, make it more profitable and secure all their futures. So he goes off to, he goes off to university and he finds that um, the kind of lessons in um, soil chemistry and the like are easy for him to understand. They don't challenge him at all. He just kind of sits through them, does very well with them, and, and that's fine. But as a freshman, he has to take a compulsory minor course in English literature. And this is where the problems arise. And there's a very moving scene towards the beginning of the book when Stoner is sat in the lecture theatre with his peers and the very austere figure of Archer Sloane walks into the room. Now, Archer Sloane is trying to teach um, the students about Shakespeare's Sonnet 73. And the powerful scene in the book where Archer Sloane stands at the front of the class, eyeballs Stoner and says to him, Stoner, what does the sonnet mean? And there's a beautiful description of, of Stoner's complete paralysis in this um, situation. He's been presented with the words of the sonnet and he doesn't know how to take them. He's completely stopped in his tracks. I mean, they're all individual words that he can understand, but in this context, he, he can't, he doesn't know how to proceed. It's a little like he's, he's in that kind of father-tongue relationship to these words. He, he has to decide and he can't. And, of course, Archer Sloan asks him again, Stoner, it's very simple. You know, they're words which you know. What does the sonnet mean? And Stoner just can't respond. But he's profoundly moved by the experience. He knows that there's something really important at stake. I'm sorry, I'm getting all emotional telling you about this. You need to go and read the book. Um, but it's a beautiful illustration, I think, of, um, of Stoner's encounter with language. And he's been really disturbed by that uh, encounter, by that literature um, which, he's, which he's come across. It's, it's, I think, a similar kind of thing to perhaps the social work students to, it, to whom Richard referred this morning experience when they, they were read this poem and thought, what is going on here? You know, we're here to learn social work. What, what's going on? I don't know if you see that connection, Richard, but I thought of it immediately when you were, you were telling us um, about it. So Stoner is arrested by the language in front of him. He, founds it, he finds it a disturbing encounter. And many, perhaps including Archer Sloan, would see what was going on there as his lack of engagement with the subject. But I think, no, it wasn't a lack of engagement. He was profoundly engaged 
but he was engaged in a kind of encounter which was educational. I won't tell you if you haven't read the book what happens, but I think um, once you read the, the final parts of the book, you will see um, how that encounter with language at the beginning of the book was hugely um, educational for Stoner. And I think contemporary universities similarly try to control the experience, the student experience, in much the same way as I think Archer Sloan is trying to control um, Stoner's experience in the book. But in that seeking to, um, to exercise that control, they suppress the risk of the encounter of that situation in favour of what is easily measurable. But I don't think that it's only literature that affords that kind of encounter um, that I'm talking about. I think film also has that potential to elicit encounter and to unsettle those who watch it. And I've tried to take that idea and see how it works in teacher um, education and I just want to share with you how I've done that and, and my thinking that's, that's come from that. So when I talk about using film with um, in CPD programmes for teachers but also in um, initial teacher education, what I'm not trying to get at with the students is get them to understand what the film means in the same way as Archer Sloan was trying to get Stoner to understand what Sonnet 73 was about. It's not about meaning in the way that I use film. It's not about making judgments regarding the message of the film and what, what the teachers might take of that in terms of what, what the film can tell them about how to do education with their students. It's about experiencing the film, about the experience of watching it. And again, just thinking about the etymology of the word experience, um, it comes from two Latin words, experientia, which is to do with danger and trial. So one's experience of the film puts one, in one sense, on trial. It's a risky business, um, sometimes in some of the films that, that we watch. So I want to just talk a little bit um, about my use of this film, um, Imagine. It's a um, Polish film uh, from 2012 and it's um, directed by Andrzej Jakimowski. Has anybody seen this one? Excellent. Okay. So let me just then explain to you a little bit about the, the film and then I want to play you a scene because I want you to experience it in the way that I've used it with uh, my teacher education students. So in this film um, by Jakimowski, there's, I think, a moving and profound illustration of this idea of encounter with otherness. The film is set in Lisbon, in Portugal, um, in a clinic for visually impaired students. And the film portrays the lives of children and young people being taught to live with their disability. Oh my goodness, can you see that? Yeah. Okay, so in the opening scenes of the film, you see... Um, a tutor trying to teach the students to fill their water glasses and of course you can't if you quite see it here this is a blind student and haven't got, quite got the technique right because the water is pouring um, down the side of the glass and 
and it's, it's, it's painful to watch as you see some of them trying to finger the rim of the glass to and put the, put the water jug on it so that it doesn't spill and of course it spills all over the place. So the film portrays these children being taught various techniques to kind of live with and manage their disability and they're also taught to use the white cane. So this is what the school is really about, teaching the pupils to use the white cane. And some key, um, there's some key characters here. This is Ian, a teacher who I'll talk about in a minute, who's brought into this school. And this is Serrano, one of the, one of the main characters who builds a really strong relationship with, with Ian, the new teacher. So by using the white cane alone, the students are taught to stay safe and avoid risks. And most never leave the confines of the school. And Ava, a student I've got some pictures of later, an adult student, rarely even leaves her room. We see her um, uh, looking out of the clinic's window in many scenes uh, from the film. But the clinic chooses to appoint Ian, played here um, by Edward Hogg. And Ian wants to introduce some more unconventional kind of creative, innovative teaching methods into the clinic. So soon after his appointment, um, Ian takes the students um, into the courtyard and he's trying to get them to locate the clinic's cat using different kind of techniques. So here they all are sat in the courtyard and he's trying to get them um, to locate the clinic's cat. None of them can um, identify when the cat is present. And of course Ian says, well actually, you know the cat is there because you can hear the dog barking. So he's trying to kind of teach them a, a different way of imagining and seeing the world. But the students are not really sold on this. And they think Ian, you know, Ian can't, I mean, Ian can't see, he's blind himself. How does he really know that it's the dog barking when the cat appears and not the dog barking because the postman's come? So they, they're a bit sceptical about his kind of powers that they see a bit like superpowers. Then they're not sure. And they accuse Ian of actually not being blind at all. And they think he can, he can actually see more than he's um, you know, letting on. So what they do is they try to trick him by um, rigging up a wire across the corridor by his room and hope he'll fall over it. And they push a wardrobe into the corridor and so that he, you know, bump into it. But of course, Ian doesn't because he's using kind of different techniques of clicking and like echolocation um, to see where, where things are. And there's a, there's a very emotionally tense scene in the film when um, Ian's been out one night and he comes back a little worse for wear and Serrano says to him, you know, I really don't think you're, you're blind at all. And there's a very moving scene where uh, Ian actually takes out his false eyes and puts them in Serrano's, um, Serrano's hands so that he can actually feel um, the fact that, yes, he, he, is, he is blind. So, um, I think what Yakimovsky's film does here is try to set up some kind of contrast between the clinic and its kind of pedagogical requirements to use only the white cane and Ian's alternative approaches that incorporates students' sensors and that use techniques of echolocation. And so the clinic's staff decide to um, 
test Ian out to see if these techniques really work. And so they go out into the courtyard and you can see some of the clinic staff here. There's um, a couple of members of staff here. And here's Ian. And what the staff say to him is, there's a, there's a bicycle in the middle of the courtyard. We want you to use your techniques of echolocation to find the bicycle. So here's Ian, who's actually, I mean, the courtyard's quite big. And he walks around the courtyard using this clicking, which I can't replicate, I'm sorry. Um, and he just uses his tongue to make clicking sounds. And um, he can sense, actually, how the sound in the ground with his heels changes as he gets near objects. And, of course, he rings the bell on the, on the bike to show that he's found it. And, and all the students cheer. So his creative techniques have, have worked. And I think we might use this film in professional education to actually teach um, trainee teachers about a whole range of things. So for example, it might be that we want this film to stimulate some kind of discussion around inclusion and whether you know, children should be taught in um, a dedicated blind school or whether they should be integrated into, uh, into existing schools. So we could use the film in that way. We could use the film to talk about uh, risk and pedagogy. And if we were to do that, the film would act in some sense as a, as a pedagogue. And that we're trying to get at the, uh, the meaning of the film and what it can tell us about how we might do education better. But I don't think um, this is right at all. I think there's another way in which we can think about film, particularly film in professional education, which is not about trying to strip the film of its meaning and what can it tell us about how to do things better, but how we might think about the experience of watching a film and how that can then help teachers to um, develop as teachers in the way that Anya was talking about this morning. Um, we talked about the kind of ontology of the teacher and the becoming and the being of the teacher. So he, here's my, I'm saying the same thing as Anya really, <laughs> so you've heard this before. Um, so I just want to play you um, a little clip of the film and I hope this um, works. Bear with me. So this, this is a clip that comes after um, Ian has found the bicycle uh, in the middle of the courtyard. And he, uh, the clinic staff say to him, well, that's all well and good, but it could just have been a fluke. Um, there's actually something else in this courtyard. There's a motorbike. We want you to find the motorbike. Now, the motorbike is much harder to find because it's not in the middle of the courtyard like the, like the bicycle was. It's kind of lent up against a wall kind of over here somewhere. So again, they're, they're trying to check Ian out and see, um, you know, see if he really is the real deal or not. So I'm hoping that we can just watch this clip. For the, any of you can read Polish, you'll be able to follow it in the subtitles. The wall into any other objects? No, it isn't. It's too far away then. A few meters can make all the difference. Oh, you mean hang on, sorry. You mean uh, uh, Right, sorry, I didn't realise that you weren't seeing that. Uh, now I'm not quite sure how to get the DVD onto the screen. Apologies, David. 
Maybe I have to shut down the PowerPoint. Ah, hang on. We might be there. I already told you, I don't use the nope. sensor for orientation. <laughs> I'm sorry. Technical advice needed. Thank you, Katie, again. When I play this, it doesn't appear on the screen. You need to go back up there. Just a wee little bit. Am I okay for time, David? The motorbike in the courtyard as well. Yeah. Over yeah. there. Thank you. Thank you. You should have this. It's quite close. It should also reflect down ticking. Why didn't it? Is it by the wall near to any other objects? No, it isn't. It's too far away then. A few meters can make all the difference. You mean, you need the sunset to find it? I already told you, I don't use the sensor for orientation. It's very clever. It indicates the distance by vibrating. Show them that you don't need the sensor. Yeah, show them. Yeah, show them that you don't need it. Show them. Shoot. You should use a cane like every blind people. Sorry. Okay. So I've used that clip. Uh, I've used the whole film actually, but particularly that clip with, with groups of students. Because I think that, that experience, that very visceral experience of seeing Ian fall down the cone shoot is, is really unexpected. I mean, you can kind of see it coming, but there's something very disturbing about seeing that on the screen and experiencing that through the watching of the film. And it's that kind of experience of encountering the film that I think has something much more profound and much richer to, um, to tell us than actually using the film in the way as a pedagogue to teach us about creativity in, in pedagogy 
or risk in education. So Alexis Gibbs, a philosopher of education from Winchester, has written about this idea of um, using um, film as education otherwise, not as trying to work out the kind of meaning of a film, but as something, something different. And he talks about, in his book that was published this year, about the possibility of an encounter with film, which is what I kind of wanted you to experience with that, with that clip. And he's taking on um, some research by Bergler, which is um, about using film in that other way as um, just teaching us something and trying to get at the meaning um, of the film. And he says this, an alternative approach sees the school not just as a place for teaching film, but as a place in which the perceptions of teaching, learning and schooling could also be transformed by the experience of film viewing. And I think what um, Alexis is saying um, about schools there, um, very much the same can be said about universities and um, professional education um, within, um, within universities. Um, and actually, Bergler says this um, in his paper. There's many things which uh, Gibbs is taking an um, issue with in Bergler's paper, but Bergler says this. You might say along these lines that art cannot be taught, but must be encountered, experienced, transmitted by other means than the mere, uh, than discourse of mere knowledge, and even sometimes without any discourse at all. And that's just what I've been trying to argue with this, this use of film. So I think that risking encounter, rather than the debased reductive forms of engagement which are so prevalent in the university, opens up the possibilities um, for education still in the contemporary university. I want to finish then with just this quote from, from Gibbs. There's a special role that film might play in creating public conversations about what matters to students, including student teachers. Now, how the things that they see on film play out in and provide perspectives on their own lives. Given that a large part of those lives are spent in schools, could it not be valuable also to see film as a starting point for conversations around how young people see their education and how it might be otherwise? Thank you.